What do you think about the Obama administration's decision to circumvent the normal process, which was laid out in the Administrative Procedure Act, for adopting a legislative rule, which would have included notice and the opportunity to make comments? Yeah, I mean, so Congress promulgated Title IX back in 1972, and the administration has the authority to promulgate regulations that will interpret how the law is applied. And generally speaking, when the administration wants to change its regulations, it has to go through a variety of procedures that the APA, I'm abbreviating the law that you just described, APA sets out a set of rules that the administration has to go through when it wants to change its regulations. And this guidance flagrantly violates those rules. It just changed them without any notice and comment, without any input from the public, without any consideration, and frankly, without any evidence that the notion that gender identity is somehow part of sex has any basis in fact or reality. Well said. Um, So I'm going to ask you some questions from a devil's advocate, maybe trans advocate perspective. Um, So the other side of this debate claims that it is fear of trans people that is driving this lawsuit and that there is nothing to fear and that women should just get used to sharing our sex-segregated faces with men who feel that they are women. Um, Do do women have something real to fear about having males in their sex-segregated spaces, or is this fear a result of bigotry? There's so much there. Um, (laughs) So women have a lot to fear for men. On average, over 1,600 women are murdered by men in the United States every year. It's estimated that a man or a boy sexually assaults or rapes a girl or a woman every minute in the United States. So there really can be no question that women and girls have every reason to be concerned about boys and men in their spaces, our spaces. And then I guess I would also ask, you know, I, I would turn the question around and ask about what do you mean by trans? Because the goalposts change constantly in terms of what trans means. And we have to keep going back to the fact that the guidance does mention trans people, but what it effectively does is say anybody can access any facility on the basis of self-declared gender identity. And what I think the trans activists people aren't acknowledging is that the guidance allows any man to say, I'm a woman today and go into a woman's space on that basis. I mean, it really does. It just says anyone can access any facility on the basis of gender identity, self-declared. Right. So I think the trans activism community is really not being fair here. Okay. in failing to acknowledge that there are going to be men who are simply going to say, hey, I'm a woman today. So going off that, are there any cases you can point to that have already happened of males who identify as women or trans women harming actual women in bathrooms? Constant. Many. There's a case in Chicago that happened, I think, earlier this year, possibly at the end of last year, 
where a male went into a bathroom and choked an eight-year-old girl to the point of unconsciousness. Her mother was outside, luckily heard her screams and alerted the authorities, and they were able to get there in time to save her from death. Uh, There was a male in 2013 who identified as transgender in Toronto who gained access to a women's shelter who violently sexually assaulted at least two women. And there are countless examples of males going into female, into women's bathrooms and filming women going to the bathroom. And it was literally countless. Like, I don't, I, I mean, I could give you examples, but there are so many. Um, there, there's also, uh, oh, there's also the, um, the University of Toronto experimented with quote-unquote gender-neutral showers. And there were a couple of male students who filmed female students naked in the shower. Then the university rethought its policy. And, like, we have to be real about this. When men film women in the shower or using the bathroom, that goes up on the Internet instantly. Right. That's really important. That's before a guy gets arrested. So a woman has already been filmed naked in the shower or using the bathroom. I'm trying to (laughs) use respectful language, but like peeing, you know, that's viral already. Right, and there's a market for that type of pornography, so. Yes, absolutely. Before he's arrested, if he's arrested. And so the damage is already done to her. Yeah. Have you heard the counter-argument that some trans activists make where they claim that sex-segregated bathrooms are another version of oppressive segregation, and then they compare it to Jim Crow? What do you say to that, you know? Yeah, I mean, what I say to that is that race was invented by Europeans to justify horrible things to non-Europeans, and it's a social construct that has to go away. And until it goes away, we're going to have serious problems. And I'm an anti-racist activist in my professional work, and gender works the same way that race does. It's a social construct. Gender is a social construct that was created to justify the oppression of women. Race does not exist genetically. We are all humans. Race was made up to justify the oppression of human beings. And it was used to justify Jim Crow. And that was just hideous. And I'm glad we're done with that legally. And we have a lot more work to do on anti-racism work in the United States. Gender was a social construct that was invented to justify the oppression of women. And it is continuing to do so. And the transactivism community is using gender as a way to oppress women. Gender doesn't exist other than to keep us in boxes. To be clear, if boys want to wear dresses and heels, I think that's great. Great. Boys should wear dresses and heels if they want to. That doesn't make them not boys. Right. (laughs) Well said. Um, I was reading online that you founded a nonprofit organization called 1000 Arms in July 2015. And you say you founded that because This is a quote from you. Organizational dysfunction and systemic oppression are getting in the way of our ability to actualize our full human potential. So how does that important work that you're doing fighting racism relate to this legal effort with Wolf? Personally and professionally, 
ultimately, my goal is to realize the end of all forms of oppression. I don't think that I will see that in my lifetime, but I am committed to doing everything I can in my lifetime to further that goal. And professionally, I do anti-racism work with white people who are sincerely interested in examining our own racial conditioning as white people. And I use contemplative practices to do that. And I use my own education as an anti-racist advocate to do that. And the work that I do with Wolf is on a volunteer basis. And I am as committed to ending the oppression of women as I am committed to ending the oppression of people who are not white. I see them both completely oriented toward 1,000 Arms' ultimate mission, which is the end of oppression of all beings. So I know you can only speak to how this is within your own life, but among other attorneys and among other activists, do you find that there is a sense of free debate around the validity of gender identity as a concept? Among my professional colleagues? Yeah, people you know, uh, people you work with. Well, no. I mean, the answer is I don't know and no. I don't speak about this stuff for the most part outside my radical feminist circles because it's extremely controversial. People get very upset and it brings up really interesting and challenging dynamics. I don't talk about this issue in my legal circles because most of my professional legal colleagues are focused on criminal justice and racial justice reform. So this issue doesn't come up so much. In my social circles, I get in big trouble when I mention this stuff. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of women can relate to that. So this is a related question. Sometimes feminists who start out agreeing with trans ideology and eventually develop concerns about the movement, sometimes they call their moments of awakening their peak trans moment or moments. Did you ever have a moment or series of moments where you realized that there were big holes, so to speak, in the trans ideology? Yeah, for the longest time, I just thought that, I mean, I've been a feminist for pretty much my whole life. I was raised to be a feminist by my mother. And for a long time, I thought what was going on was people breaking down gender barriers. And I was really excited about that. And so I really embraced the whole trans thing because I thought it was about breaking down gender. And then I had a conversation with a radical feminist friend of mine who really educated me, and she gave it to me straight. And as soon as I heard what she was saying, it became very clear to me. And then I pulled down a bunch of radical feminist literature on my bookshelf that I hadn't read in a long time, and I spent a couple days reading it, and it was just like light bulbs went off. And I was like, oh, yeah thing is not a thing. This is not helping abolish gender, which is what I am about and what I think will ultimately heal all of humanity. I love that. I also loved your talk at Left Forum this year, which was in New York City, and I would encourage any women listening to type in gender identity under male supremacy in the search bar on YouTube. And you can watch the full Radical Feminist Left Forum 2016 workshop, which Kara was a part of. And Kara, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like articulating those feminist critiques of trans politics 
in such a pro-gender identity space? Well, we were nervous. We were all nervous. I was nervous. And we didn't know what to expect. And we all gave our talk. And I think we were all surprised that we didn't get much backlash. Very pleasantly surprised. We didn't get much backlash. And most of the Q&A consisted of people either expressing comments that agreed with what we were saying or asking some really intelligent questions and, and sort of wanting to know more and exploring and challenging. And those were all welcome. There was one young woman who accused us of being transphobic, but she wasn't at all abusive or uh, like it, it was fine. You know, she just said she found our comments to be transphobic and we asked her why, and she didn't really have much of an articulation of why she thought we were being transphobic. She just expressed her concern, so we welcomed that and responded in the best way that we could. Uh, and for the most part, it was just really collegial and pleasant, and it was a it was a really productive conversation. Well, I know a lot of women have viewed it and were very inspired by how brave you all were to get up there and say all that and just that you covered so many aspects of this very well. So what was the reaction from women in the audience? Most of the women in the audience were horrified to learn about how the prevailing trans ideology is erasing women and horrified to hear things like, People are talking about how people can have female penises and we're not allowed in many sectors to say woman. We have to say uterus bearer and, you know, we're not allowed to talk about periods. Most of the women were really shocked and horrified to hear what was going on in terms of social media and how women are being silenced about the realities of being a female human being. And just to see how much second wave feminism has been walked back uh, is really troubling. I will say most of the women who spoke up in favor of what we were saying were themselves second wave feminists. So we didn't hear much from any third wave feminists. We really didn't receive much backlash or much questioning at all. Yeah, that shocked me because I felt what you were saying was very radical and to only have the one person call you transphobic was amazing, I thought. So thank you also for doing that. I really just thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that. And yeah, we were really pleasantly surprised that we weren't abused. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that your surprise just really speaks to the silencing of women's free speech and the silencing of debate and the way that being critical of this movement is considered being phobic. Yeah. If you can just go over your answer again about how the May 13 guidance document changed the way that Title IX is being interpreted. Sure. So Title IX was enacted in 1962 specifically to protect the rights of women and girls and to remedy the centuries of discrimination against women and girls in the educational setting. And the May 13th guidance redefined sex to include gender identity. And what that effectively has done has said that anyone who, quote unquote, identifies as a woman can get the benefits of Title IX. So any man or boy who, quote unquote, identifies as a female, woman or girl, 
can benefit from Title IX, and it also means effectively the end of female-only spaces. So women will no longer have the ability to... um, It is about bathrooms, definitely about bathrooms, but also women will not have the right to shower free from male presence. Women will not have the right to sleep free from male presence. Women will not have the right to go to college free from male presence. It really represents the erasure of the category of sex from Title IX protection. It's really important to remember that sex is not the same as gender. And the federal government is repeatedly using the term gender to mean sex. And we have to be really careful because those terms are not synonymous and they're not interchangeable. 